Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the surge of anti-trans legislation coming from Republican-controlled state legislatures, the harm being inflicted on trans people, the trans-exclusionary radical feminists who have partnered with conservative coalitions to limit trans rights, and the world of sex-segregated athletics. A lot to get to. Clips today are from Straight White American Jesus, The Majority Report, Democracy Now!, Consider This, What Next?, Post Reports, a TEDx talk from Hudson Taylor, and a TED talk from Archie Crowley. What is gender dysphoria? It is the experience, the anxiety that comes from a kind of gap is how I describe it between the way that somebody experiences their gender identity, whether they experience themselves as male, female, non-binary, fluid, whatever that is, and the gender they were assigned at birth, or basically the, the way that other people have seen them as engendered. And so gender dysphoria is listed in this big giant book called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, fifth edition. And for people who don't know what that is, it's it's the book that basically lays out the diagnostic criteria for mental health conditions uh, that are used by psychiatrists and and uh, psychologists and not just in the U.S., but in other places in the world as well. So the reason that this is important, a few reasons. Number one, sometimes you'll hear people on the right who say, well, see, gen gender dysphoria is it's a mental illness. If you're transgender, you're mentally ill. See, it's in this book. That's not what it says, right? In fact, the DSM-5, that, and that's the fifth edition, there have been four other editions, is, in my view, really, really clear, even though clinicians, I think, don't always see this. It's really clear that gender identity is not pathological. In other words, uh, if Brad Onishi is identified as Brad the little boy when he's born and gets older and begins to experience himself as not a him, as a her, as something else... That doesn't mean that, that you're mentally ill, right? Um, it's that anxiety that's created that's considered a pathology. And why does that matter? So here's the first place for me where it comes to the interconnectedness. The only reason people experience gender dysphoria, that anxiety, the only reason they experience that gap is because the world will not recognize them the way they feel themselves. Um, gender dysphoria is one of these things that's like sort of tragically easy to deal with if society would just change. Because if somebody says to me, well, what do you do? How do you quote unquote treat gender dysphoria? It's really, really simple. Let kids in this case express themselves in accordance with the gender they experience themselves to be and respond to them that way. So you change their pronouns. You use the pronouns they want. If they want to change their name, you change their name. If it's growing out their hair, they grow out their hair or they dress differently or whatever. And if it means that medical steps are warranted, you you make it so that they can have access to those things, right? If you didn't have this socially created sense of gender, you wouldn't have gender dysphoria. It wouldn't exist. So that's like the first bit of interconnectedness that, that a lot of these, these people don't sort of pick up on is that it's not about choice. It's not about individual psychology. It's It's a social problem. Right. Which is why these these laws are so dangerous, because they sort of perpetuate this. The other piece of this I want to get into and then I'll, I'll throw it over to you is is because of this sense of pathologizing gender identity, people within the LGBTQ community have really been divided about whether or not there ought to be a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Um, I, I researched this some in, in my book that's coming out. And, you know, if you read DSM-3 and DSM-4, the prior editions, they do pathologize gender identity. It's pretty clear that if you don't measure up to certain gender norms and so forth, that, that it's pathologized. And in other words, that they think there's sort of something wrong with you or you're abnormal. That's gone in DSM-5, and that was by intention. But there were some who said that doesn't go far enough. We've got this history of pathologizing uh, not just gender identity, but homosexuality and different kinds of things like this. It should just be gone. The argument in favor of it, though, and this is an argument that I've found persuasive for a long time, is if you, because it exists as a diagnosis, it means that doctors can treat it, right? They can argue that there are medical applications of hormone blockers or hormone replacement therapies for trans youth and trans adults who need those. It means that you can argue to insurance companies, you should provide insurance coverage for these kinds of things. And in this, this almost never happens with minors, 
But for people who are older, if there are gender confirmation surgeries, that these should be medically covered as well. And this has happened. And the reason I bring all that up, it shows the interconnected of all this, like debates about healthcare, debates about access to insurance, uh, debates about social acceptance of LGBTQ people, uh, debates about all these things sort of flow together. Because what we're seeing is if these things win in court, I would argue that they might not have if there wasn't a category of gender dysphoria in in this this giant book of of uh, designation. So again, that that interconnectedness that when we hear things like health coverage, we hear things like healthcare, and it can sound kind of abstract to us. Or maybe if we're young people who are pretty healthy and we don't go to the doctor very often and we don't need to, and you think, well, what's the big deal about people not having healthcare? Or um, we think only of people who are older who might need health care, or we think of communities of color who are underserved by health care. We'll come back to that later. It also affects kids, right? A kid who feels like they're a different gender than they were assigned at birth. And, and so these things are really important. So all of this, it, it sort of occurred to me to be useful to, to situate how is this a medical issue? Why does the American Medical Association and the American Association of Pediatrics and all these other groups, like, why do they care about trans youth, this is part of why, is because it is, in fact, a medical diagnosis. Earlier iterations of, like, gender identity identity disorders, like, uh, diagnostic criteria were broader than the current diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria. And some of that can just be that you like, refuse to enact gender roles. It didn't, it didn't require a child to state their own gender, for instance, um, which the current gender dysphoria requires sort of like a stated, a statement of identity, uh, it being necessary for a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Gotcha. Um, and there are problems with the way that gender dysphoria is presented in the DSM. There's problems with the DSM in general. Uh, but it is not the case that uh, any sort of treatment is being forced on kids all of a sudden. Uh, I don't know if your audience is very familiar. The, the sort of standard for treatment right now in states and developed countries that allow this uh, is that if a child is prepubescent, there is no medical intervention. Um, you just let the kid be. There's a pretty significant data that forcing them into a gender identity or gender behavior, like, you know, gender coded behaviors that they don't like is really bad for them. Uh, and so many uh, psychologists will recommend just taking the child's lead and seeing where they go, supporting them in the activities they want, how they want to dress, what they want to be called. Fine. There's no medicine involved. After puberty starts, after what's sometimes described as like a natal puberty, um, after a puberty that is sort of not concordant with the gender identity of the child begins, then you can consult with a doctor, a specialist, who may or may not prescribe uh, puberty blockers. Puberty blockers are reversible. They've been used on cis people for decades. Um, there is some possibility of very limited side effects, but they're far safer than almost any other medical intervenement, like intervention that we have, just generally speaking. Um, and so you can assign uh, puberty blockers to give the child more time to develop emotionally and their identity uh, intellectually until usually they're about 15 or 16 uh, would be the standard for if they are still insistent that they want to medically transition, they can start HRT. And no one gets bottom surgery until they're uh, adults, until they're over the age of 18. And very few people uh, get top surgery on trans men, so like a double mastectomy, until they're over that age. Uh, that depends on the state because we have different laws about consenting to surgery in different states. Um, but it's never children. <laughs> right. You know, it's never right. little kids.
Chase, to what do you attribute this uh, sudden wave of legislation in uh, various states across the country? I mean, you know, this year is particularly egregious and sweeping, but this is something that has been the culmination of work from an anti trans, anti-LGBTQ lobby for the past at least seven years. And of course, we can trace this history going back much, much longer. We can look at the moral panic of Anita Bryan, of Phyllis Schafly, um, and even just looking in 100 years in the past in the ways in which colonial powers used regulation and control over sexed bodies to exert power. So there's a long history here. I think what we're seeing today in state legislatures is a particular effort to pivot from the anti-trans restroom bills into a new form of regulation of trans young people and trans bodies. And they have seen an opening because they've built alliances, even with some people who would consider themselves liberals and progressives, who have either remained relatively complacent or who have joined forces in the attacks on trans young people. So right now we're seeing an escalation um, in supermajority Republican legislatures where we are not countering that escalation with the appropriate level of resistance, given the magnitude of harm that is going to result. I'd like to bring Raquel into the conversation. Raquel, you tweeted that, quote, the GOP continues to terrorize communities on the margins all across this country. Uh, this is why we must come together on these fights. As a black trans woman from Georgia, it's not lost on me how these fights against people of color and LGBTQ folks are connected. Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm from Georgia. And when I think about my life, all of my identities have played a role in, in the way that I've navigated society. And of course, the ways that I have been made a target. And so when I think about the recent um, passage of voter, re voter restriction um, back in uh, Georgia, I think about the ways in which it's all about policing communities of color. And, and that is completely tied to this fight and this onslaught against trans people. It's about policing our bodies, right? And, and so this is about us interrogating what power looks like and how it is wielded within our society. It makes absolutely no sense for these people to be trying to control the lives of vulnerable communities. And when I think about trans children, it is so horrible how they are being stripped of their childhood um, and not even looked at as the humans that they are. I wanted to ask Chase about one of the ACLU's clients, Andrea Yearwood, a black trans student-athlete. Andrea is a recent high school graduate who ran on our school's girls' track team. Let's go to her in her own words. One of the issues that our community is facing and has, and has been facing for a while is, just, I think, misinformation in, in general, who we are and what our community stands for and who our community is. And... I think one thing to, I guess, combat that is, just, again, like education and more education within our school system so that people don't say, oh, that's a man or, oh, that's a woman and can you misgender us? Like, I feel like education is very important in having people understand, again, like what we as a community and what we as people stand for. Chase, can you tell us about Andrea? Yeah, so I just want to start by saying Andrea Yearwood and Terry Miller, two you know young trans athletes from Connecticut, two young black women who have endured so many attacks simply for existing and participating in school sports alongside their peers, as they have every right to do. Um, Andrea is a young person who graduated from high school. She was a track athlete. Uh, she trained every day for four hours, worked so hard, loved the sport, and how is she rewarded for that. She is the centerpiece of a attack campaign with pieces on Fox News targeting her, a lawsuit brought by Alliance Defending Freedom on behalf of cisgender athletes trying to block her from running in her senior year, which ultimately all of their senior seasons were canceled because of COVID. But the lawsuit continues, even though she has quit the sport altogether due to the ongoing harassment that she experienced, the lawsuit is continuing because they are trying to strip her and Terry of their past titles. And any win that they have achieved, they're trying to get it erased from records, even records that are hanging in their individual high schools. They have been the subject of so much misinformation and assault and claims that they have displaced cisgender athletes when all of they were doing was running, 
consistent with their rights under state and federal law, winning sometimes, though they lost to cisgender athletes. And I think an important clarification point here is that there are claims that cisgender athletes are going to be somehow displaced in scholarships by transgender athletes. No out transgender woman or girl athlete from high school has ever achieved or received an athletic scholarship to compete in athletics at at the collegiate level because there is so much discrimination. Terry and Andrea never once got a recruitment call, even though all of the cisgender athletes who are trying to block them from participating are currently on athletic scholarship in division one schools. We have a serious conversation to have about how much discrimination trans people are facing, and yet they're still escalating attacks. If you can also elaborate on that, Raquel, and talk about, well, the piece the two of you co-authored for The Nation, visibility alone will not keep transgender youth safe. What will, Raquel? Yeah, I mean, I I think a big part of the work that Chase and I have been partnering on over this last week as we've expanded Trans Day of Visibility into Trans Week of Visibility and Action is really getting people to be about that action. And, And so that means we can't just rest on some of the social strides that we've made, whether it's in Hollywood or on different screens in these different sectors. Those things are powerful and great. And we definitely need to see more of uh, our stories in media and, and, and in these ways. But we also need to be using that action to change our material realities and, and protect our rights. And so this week has really been for us all about getting people mobilized so that they can contact lawmakers, let them know that trans people have a whole group of folks who support us, are behind us, who love us, and want to see us safe and protected. You know, when I think about um, trans youth, I think about two trans youth who actually really inspired me because of the ways that their lives ended just a few years ago. So within months of each other, Leela Alcorn, a young trans girl, and Blake Brockington, a young trans boy, died by suicide, right? And and we know based on the things that they said and the people who knew them, and of course, a suicide letter uh, that Leela had published online after she passed, is that they felt like they were not being supported, that there was no future for them as openly trans youth. And I'm afraid that if we don't get involved and be active, we're going to see that trend continue. I talked to one of those medical professionals, Dr. Joshua Safer, executive director of Mount Sinai's Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery in New York City. And he told me supporters of these bills are just wrong to claim that puberty blocking medicines have permanent consequences. The point of puberty blockers is that they're a conservative option and that they are reversible. Not only that, he said doctors prescribe these medicines to some cisgender kids, too. They're used to treat some cancers or to help young people struggling with adrenal issues or early puberty. When we use these medications uh, for transgender kids, as well as for kids with precocious puberty, they're incredibly safe and they can be stopped and things will revert to how they were. Safer told me he's also heard from doctors in other states where laws like the one in Arkansas are under consideration. Are they afraid for their patients? Uh, They're afraid for their patients at several levels. They're certainly afraid for their patients being victimized verbally by their state legislatures. Uh, And they are certainly afraid that their patients will lack access to care. Uh, So absolutely. Hey, everyone. I hope you're enjoying another ad-free edition of the show. Most of our episodes these days don't have ads. It's not by choice. I'm told that this is the slow season for podcast ads. Plus, as a political show, we already face significant headwinds trying to find advertisers. So that's why I've been mentioning that now would be a great time to sign up for a membership, maybe even an annual membership. That way you get to chip in each year, right when our finances start to droop. I tried to think of a cool name for people who sign up at this time to help lift us through this season, but it's been tough. There was second quarterbackers. That's pretty bad. I think we all agree. Um, Maybe there's something to do with spring, spring fling. I don't know. Sign up for an annual membership and have a 
annual spring fling. It, it sounds tawdry. Anyway, the point is that now would be a particularly helpful time for you to sign up for a membership, and of course you'll get to hear all of our outstanding bonus content we've been producing, and you can feel good about helping to keep us on firm financial footing. So head over to bestofleft.com support for all the details, and thanks so much for your support. Is there data that uh, represents the conservative argument that there is this vast number of uh, uh, children or teenagers who think they're transgender, go through the treatments, and then come out later and say they're cis? The general rate of regret for medical transition, depending on specifically what procedures you're talking about and which studies you look at, uh, the general rate for like uh, regret and detransition ranges between uh, 5% and like 0.3%, depending on the specifically how you're framing what regret means and what detransition means, uh, which is lower, for instance, than the number of women who regret having children. Right. Uh, another lo- long-term life-changing decision. Yes. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a relatively... Uh, I mean, compared to other medical, like significant medical procedures, it's overwhelmingly the case that people don't regret it. It also shows, uh, like a very head of, uh, sociological and psychological well-being reduced, reduced, uh, people who undergo these treatments tend to show reduced, uh, distress, reduced anxiety, reduced depression. Uh, reduced uh, prevalence of eating disorders, self-harm, suicidality, uh, all these things, uh, uh, reduction in dysphoria. Yeah, and and Matt, you you make your point, Matt. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, my understanding is some of the regret factors are people not accepting, like, what they've done, basically, too, and, like, the sort of social ostracization. Is that right? That that actually, if we were just more accepting of people, some of that those regret numbers would be even lower. Yeah, so uh, the data is pretty limited in that regard, uh, but the current data does suggest that, that the that more than half of the very small percentage of people who do regret it or do detransition, uh, more than half of those people detransition due to uh, oppression, prejudice, loss of family, abuse and violence and harassment they receive, uh, and another chunk of them also because they can no longer access medical care. They don't have the option to uh, maintain the treatment that they need. So they find it that their only option is sort of to live in their, you know, assigned gender. A lot of these bills have a single source a legal advocacy group called the Alliance Defending Freedom. So the Alliance Defending Freedom is a long-standing, extreme anti-LGBTQ group. Um, they're labeled a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And to give you a sense of why, um, for a number of years, they've claimed that LGBTQ people are pedophiles. And they've advocated for the forced sterilization of transgender people in the European Court of Human Rights in 2015. They are probably as extreme in their stance on queer people as you can get. And they often are behind a lot of these bills. You've pointed out that they actually like created a website where you can like just point and click and out pops a bill. Yeah. So they have teamed up with the Heritage Foundation, Family Policy Alliance, also anti-LGBTQ groups and like statewide groups. And you can actually just enter as if you were to like, you know, sign up for a mailing list. Like I want anti-trans legislation. Here's my name. Here's my district. You know, send me a bill on sports and they will generate a bill for you. To me, when I look at these bills, they seem like nonsense. But it's interesting to look at the arguments that anti-trans groups are making and sort of see the DNA of previous 
movements, movements that have been more successful. Like I look at these sports bills, which are sort of the newest iteration of anti-trans legislation, and they really tap into this zero-sum dynamic, this idea that a trans person could replace your child on the sports team. It, it like reminds me of the argument that an immigrant could come take your job. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so easy to fear the thing we don't know, right? Like, I thought about this so much when we saw Rand Paul questioning Dr. Rachel Levine for her confirmation hearing to HHS. Dr. Rachel Levine would be the first trans person appointed to HHS. Yes. Right? Yes. To a Senate approved anywhere is historic. And, and he asked her, like, do you support, you know, basically giving children hormones to transition? Dr. Levine, do you believe that minors are capable of making such a life-changing decision as changing one's sex? Well, Senator, thank you for your interest in this question. Um, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field um, with robust research and uh, standards of care that have been developed. And if I am fortunate enough to be confirmed as the Assistant Secretary of Health, I would look forward to working with you and your office and coming to your office and discussing the particulars of the standards of care for transgender yeah, medicine. The specific question was about... And she was like, I will talk to you about the best medical practices around transition because you clearly don't understand them. She was trying to not say... <laughs> you don't get it. <laughs> yeah. But like he, he just kept driving home this point. And a lot of people will do that. They'll say like you're helping kids transition when it's the opposite is true, right? Like you just give kids puberty blockers and then you're like, okay, just we're just we're going to prevent you from going through puberty because if you if you go through puberty, like the chances that you're going to feel extreme mental duress. um are very high, you might become suicidal. So we just give you this, you write it out, <laughs> and then when you're old enough, you make the decision with your healthcare providers, like, right? And we leave it at that. And we should be pretty clear that there is good research showing that giving puberty blockers decreases the risk of suicide in trans kids. Yeah, it does. But when you're thinking, if you don't know, the facts, and you're saying we're giving all this medication to children, um, we're transitioning children. And like, if that's what people are telling you, that sounds scary and weird, right? Like, we don't, we don't know, like, we only know what we know. And so um, it's really easy, right? If you've never looked a trans kid in the face, like that is, it's hard to imagine, like, what does a transgender child look like? It's like, oh, they look like a child or just like a cute kid. They say the reason these laws keep appearing is because of the increased visibility of the trans community, and that creates a push and pull. Kate's confident that public opinion is turning in favor of trans Americans. The human rights campaign did a lot of polling right around the election and found that in swing states, among Trump voters, they overwhelmingly supported LGBTQ rights. And even when it came to trans issues and some of these issues like allowing transgender people to, you know, live freely and openly and access affirming medical care. And they asked, you know, do trans athletics like rank for you as a, as a campaign issue? And pretty much everyone was like, no. Um, and so the data shows that for the most part, um, conservative voters aren't too concerned about regulating transgender people. So there is a question about why are all these bills, you know, being used to sort of galvanize the Republican Party at this moment? Bills like this are just generally unpopular. And so they've historically been very unsuccessful. North Carolina passed an anti-trans bathroom measure in 2016 and faced enormous economic losses, and they had to quickly repeal it because the writing was on the wall so quickly. And ever since then, people have been really hesitant to pass another anti-LGBTQ bill because they know that the country is going to punish them for it. 
So you've made a good case for the fact that there is a ton of anti-trans legislation out there. But then at the same time, a lot of it isn't succeeding. So it's becoming this weird thing (laughs) that exists, but it's really unclear to me, is this becoming mainstream Republican orthodoxy now or something else? There is a real reason why this is happening. Um, I mean, one is, yeah, there are these extreme anti-LGBTQ groups who are going to fight this no matter what. This is something that they believe in. They're going to push it into state legislatures. They have a lot of money and a lot of power. The other piece of this is Democrats may control Congress and the White House, but the Supreme Court is a 6-3 conservative court. And so if one of these bills, now, you know, the Idaho bills were were challenged in court and didn't go anywhere. But if one of these bills, you know, gets elevated to the right circuit, these groups, I think, feel like they have a real shot of doing some real damage on on LGBTQ rights laws. And and I think that's a real possibility. So so this is not like, you know, this is a total waste of time and whatever. I think there actually there's a real strategy here to to flood the courts and to see what can happen now that there's a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court. You know, we saw statements from justices that they wanted to overturn marriage equality. So there is there is for sure a strategy and um it's not just a culture war. Hmm. It seems like a dangerous strategy though. Like I remember reading an article last year about the gubernatorial election in Kentucky and how it was being used as a text case for anti-trans advertising. The argument they were making was the Democrat, Andy Bashir wanted boys to be able to compete on girls' sports teams. And a ton of ads went out. And then the Democrat won. <laughs> so it just made me wonder, like, okay, you could get this to the Supreme Court, But do you want to do that? Do you want to give people a reason to not vote for you? Yeah, I think that, I mean, it is inevitable. The country is is changing on this. People have less and less tolerance for entertaining these kinds of, of bills and these kinds of policies because more and more we we just know trans people. And like I said, the medical community is just really rock solid and established on this. There's not, you know, we can say all day long that this is up for debate and that this is controversial. As the media becomes comfortable with that and understands that, it's just um, a matter of time before this kind of becomes passe. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell the Senate to pass the Equality Act to protect LGBTQ plus rights and more. As more Republican state legislatures abuse the law to attack the rights and health of trans people, adults and children alike, it is clear we cannot wait another moment to pass the Equality Act. The Equality Act would expand and modernize current federal civil rights law to protect LGBTQ plus people from discrimination in the workplace, classroom, public accommodations, retail stores, transportation, housing, and maybe most dire, healthcare. This bill would eliminate the country's patchwork of state-by-state protections and undermine the new cruel state laws popping up around the country. And while that should be enough to get behind this bill, it's worth noting that it would also close large gaps in existing civil rights laws and expand protections for women, people of color, and people of all faiths. Last year, three House Republicans joined Democrats to pass the Equality Act, and the same three helped pass it again in February. But in the Senate, this was always going to be a steep uphill battle. West Virginia conservative Democrat Joe Manchin is further entrenching his bad reputation on LGBTQ plus issues by flinching at the Equality Act. And Maine Republican Susan Collins recently withdrew her support for the bill after losing the endorsement of the human rights campaign and after embracing a notorious local anti-LGBTQ plus group during her re-election campaign. 
even with Manchin and Collins on board. Once again, protecting the rights of millions of Americans comes down to ending the Senate filibuster. It is the essential broken record of this moment, so be sure to check out the End the Filibuster pressure campaigns we highlighted in episode 1411. As always, we must do many things at once, so you can get involved in building support for the Equality Act by visiting PassTheEqualityAct.com. Click the Take Action button to learn more about the upcoming Lobby Day on April 21st and the Equality Time virtual phone bank. This national campaign was launched by a coalition of organizations like the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund, the National Center for Transgender Equality, the National Black Justice Coalition, the National Women's Law Center, and more. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if expanding and entrenching equality as the law of the land is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling the Senate to pass the Equality Act to protect LGBTQ plus rights and more via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Do you see the breeze blowing? Can you feel the winds have changed? Do you smell the scent of roses or does rotten air remain? Do you feel the time has come when we rectify what's wrong? Putting all where it belongs as we stand up and be strong. Because it's time to make a difference in this fickle world of change. What is the Women's Liberation Front? The Women's Liberation Front describes itself as a radical feminist organization committed to the total liberation of women and reproductive sovereignty and abortion rights, but they're increasingly focused on pushing back against transgender rights. And they started getting a lot of attention. Why have we seen them and groups like them popping up recently? It all began actually under the Obama administration, as some of these bathroom bills came about. If you remember that, the Obama administration also provided guidance in a Dear Colleague letter reminding schools that they should be allowing students to use the bathroom of their their gender identity. They were very public in their opposition to the policy. What that guidance effectively would have done is obliterated the regulations that allow for sex-segregated spaces. And This was kind of the first time that Wolf took a stance and publicly uh, submitted a lawsuit against the Obama administration, against the Department of Justice, pushing back against this. We essentially made two arguments. One is that uh, the Obama administration's failure to get any public input into this change constituted a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. And further, we argued that interpreting the word sex to mean gender identity for Title IX purposes was really, really bad for women and girls in institutions that received federal funding. It also filed an amicus brief to the Supreme Court opposing a case in Virginia about a student's right to use bathrooms that matched his gender identity. And they started appearing on Fox News on shows like the Tucker Carlson show. Now the left's gender insanity is destroying that. So last week, Rachel McKinnon, a biological male, won the Women's Track Cycling World Championship and set a world record in doing so. Now several current and former women cyclists are coming out to defend their sport from a takeover by men. Karadansky is a board member at Women's Liberation Front, and we're happy to have her back on this show. So, Kara, what is the case they are making that, and that you are making against what just happened? There are many Democrats and people who identify as being on the left who are very angry about the takeover of women's sports. And they started appearing at Heritage Foundation events. They received a $15,000 grant from the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a very conservative group, uh, to help fund this fight against the Obama administration. And so they've increasingly become aligned with some of these conservative groups that would otherwise not support any of their beliefs when it comes to abortion rights, reproductive sovereignty, and it's given them a very vocal and influential platform. So how does that work if Wolf ultimately supports a lot of traditionally progressive feminist values, um, with the exception of transgender rights, how do they reconcile working with conservative groups that don't agree with them on any other topic? I talked to Kara Dansky, an attorney who serves on the board of Wolf, and she told me... Cross-partisan work, at least in the United States, is not in any way unusual or surprising when different organizations who disagree about many things 
can come together on a particular issue. And so we have never compromised our stance on abortion or reproductive rights generally, and we never would. And in their mind, they don't have a choice. They keep saying that they've been shunned by all progressive groups, that they they would like to do other work as well, but they've been really rejected uh, by this, especially what they see as cancel culture on the progressive left. But then you talk to transgender advocates and they say that this is really the only issue they've focused on, that they don't believe that Wolf even really supports abortion rights or supports these other issues because they haven't taken any direct action on those issues. It's really been all about transgender issues. And so it kind of depends on who you talk to. But uh, when you talk to the leaders of Wolf, they see this as a key issue and one that they've been able to have influence on because of the support of these other allies that are predominantly conservative groups. So they see fighting against transgender rights as more important and a more immediate issue to tackle than, say, other parts of fighting for women's rights. They do say they see it as an emergency, as something that could undermine all of the other work that they want to do for women's rights. For example, they filed an amicus brief in an ongoing Supreme Court case that's one of the biggest of the year that would pertain to workplace protections, sex-based discrimination protections, and whether they apply to transgender people on the basis of gender identity. We're interested in fighting for the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls. And as everybody knows, women are female and men are male. It's really not complicated. And in their mind, that would be a major threat to sex-based protections for women, because if you can't define who a woman is, then how will you protect them in the workplace in discrimination cases? This is not a case about gender nonconformity. We totally support protections for people who refuse to conform to sex-based stereotypes, which is what gender is. And if this were a case in which Amy Stevens were challenging his employer's sex-specific dress code, we may have taken a very different position. But that's not what Amy Stevens did in this case. What Amy Stevens did is demand to be recognized as female. And we think that's wrong. I think somebody who put it really well for me was a, a researcher named Heron Greensmith, who has been tracking this group and their influence. And Heron described it as a scarcity mindset, that they, they feel that there's a scarcity of, of rights, of protections for women. If you think that there are finite resources, then you have to draw lines between who deserves access to those resources and therefore who deserves access to health and safety, well-being, a life free from violence, and who doesn't. And so you have to focus on protecting cisgender women even if it means excluding transgender women. And one of the major ways that the evangelical right, the Christian right, and also anti-trans feminists draw those lines is through gender essentialism. There are only men and women, and therefore people outside of those lines either don't deserve access to resources or should adhere to gender essentialism in order to access them. In Montana, I was watching this testimony from a woman named Barbara Earhart, who had come in from Idaho, and she seemed really passionate about the idea of keeping trans kids out of sports. I grew up uh, in the 70s, and as I was growing up, opportunities for girls and women were very much limited. People have asked me, what is it that you want to do when you grow up? And what I told everybody I wanted to do is I said I wanted to play sports. And I literally was told, that's not what girls do. And it was, it was interesting to watch her just to sort of see the language she used. You know, she didn't use words like trans girl or trans woman. She was talking about biological males, which it was just, she was just hammering that home. 
In pursuing this dream, I know firsthand of the things of which I speak. There is an absolute difference between men and women. And you know, one of the things I've noticed as we've been talking about this subject has become very myopic. It's been this idea that, you know, gosh, by allowing a biological male to participate on a girls team, let's take a high school girls basketball team where we have, say, 12 spots, that we're only displacing one young lady. But you have to understand that I think it's far more than that because of the advantages that women gain by participating in sports. And she was sort of dressing up these conservative ideas as somehow feminist, where, you know, she was talking about how as a woman, you know, she benefits from the advancement that she's had, and this could somehow set people like her back. That's been a talking point for a really long time. In fact, I went to... Anchorage, Alaska in, goodness, it would have been 2018 now, and they were passing an anti-trans, but they were trying to get an anti-trans ballot measure passed by popular vote. And when they were approaching people to sign their petition for it, they actually weren't even asking people about trans people at all. They were asking people, do you want to keep biological males out of girls' dressing rooms and bathrooms? Huh. And a lot of people we found in looking at this had signed both the ballot measure to support trans people and the ballot measure to keep biological males out of girls' dressing rooms because they didn't know that the two issues were It's like a trick. Competing, right. The reality is like biological males is not a scientific term. Like it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's not accurate. Part of that is because sex is actually a spectrum, right? We have intersex people and people can physically transition, right? Medically transition. So that's, it's an inaccurate term, but um, it's also deeply disrespectful, right? Like, to misgender someone. Yeah. And then I wonder, like, how would you enforce some kind of trans ban with kids in sports? Like, are you going to check biology at the door? Like, who even wants that? Like, who does that help? In in setting up these sort of sex testing scenarios is that you actually end up barring a lot of cisgender women from competition also, uh, if that is your goal. Um, it's really medically invasive to sex test children, right? Um, to su- subject kids to that kind of testing. And a lot of people argue it's it's actually very traumatizing to put a kid through that in order to play sports. I think a lot of kids would rather not. So are you going to start banning um, kids who are not transgender or kids who are intersex? but may not know it from playing sports. Like, where do you draw the line? Gender and sex is not as binary as we would like to think. I think a lot of us grew up with those notions, but if you're going to get into the medical divide of that, it's not that simple, right? And so that's a really fraught concept if that is truly what you're trying to achieve. executive director of Athlete Ally, I have spent the last five years of my life working to end homophobia and transphobia in sports. In the last year, we've seen more athletes come out, more allies speak out, and more teams and leagues take a stand than in any other time in history. But despite this tremendous progress, the reality is that the institution of sport still isolates and excludes the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community. Every day I try to combat that reality. And the more I do, the more I've begun to realize that many of these anti-LGBT attitudes are the byproduct of sexism. I started wrestling when I was six years old. It has been and continues to be one of the most important things in my life. It taught me the importance of hard work, how to overcome adversity, the importance of teamwork. But for all of the good things that sport taught me, there were an equal number of things that I needed to unlearn. 
Sport is a competitive reward structure. From the moment you start sports, you are taught to measure yourself against your opponents and your peers. Trophy or no trophy? Varsity or junior, junior varsity? And so as an athlete, you're left asking yourself, what do I need to do to be successful, both athletically and socially? And because sport is one of the great socialization mechanisms, every aspect of its structure impacts an athlete's value system and self-esteem. So then let's not ignore the fact that sport is one of the few institutions that is segregated by sex. From the moment I started playing sports, it was boys over here, girls over there. Sport teaches boys how to become men and girls how to become women. And because of that gender divide, I was taught that what was good was masculine and what was bad was feminine. I was taught that the girls can't play with the boys and that the boys shouldn't want to play with the girls. This sex segregation teaches a false narrative of gender and sex binaries and of male superiority. And so you're left asking yourself, what do I need to do to get ahead? You learn to play up your advantages, to play up your masculinity. You learn to diminish a boy by calling him a girl or gay. And then in some twisted irony, you criticize female athletes for being too masculine. You use lesbian labels and stereotypes to diminish their efforts. This is all part of a larger system that privileges heterosexual, cisgendered male experiences where homophobic and sexist insults are interchangeable. As I climbed the sports ladder, I saw more and more of my peers buying into these rigid gender norms. They started to wear this culture like a comfortable coat. And because today's athletes will be tomorrow's coaches and athletic directors and business leaders, this system of homophobia and transphobia and sexism is cyclical and intergenerational and permeates throughout every sector of society. According to FIFA, there are about 265 million soccer players around the world. The global fan base of soccer is estimated at some 3.5 billion people. That is nearly half of the world's population. Sport speaks every language. It cuts across cultures and communities in a way that little else does. And so, with a scope that large, cannot be overstated. But neither can the impact of the inequality within it. After the landmark passage of Title IX, there was a 600% increase of women competing in college sports here in the United States. But there's also been a 200% decrease of women coaching women's sports. And to this day, there's still less than 2% of female, female coaches coaching men's teams. When you have a sports structure that privileges male athleticism over female athleticism, and when many hiring decisions are, are based on past athletic accomplishments, it's no wonder that female coaches have twice the competition for half the number of jobs because they are not being considered for coaching men's teams in the same way that male coaches are being considered for coaching women's teams. This bias is carried over into how the media covers men's and women's sports. Uh, in 2014, SportsCenter allotted only 2% of its coverage to women athletics. Time and time again, we see sports commentators call women girls when they would never ever call men boys. This language is yet another example of how female athleticism is trivialized. What doing this work has taught me is that the sex segregation in sports teaches sexism. And sexism is a fundamental building block of homophobia and transphobia. If we want to end these issues, we need to start investing in more mixed-gendered sporting opportunities. There is no reason why we can't have college and Olympic athletes um, competing together in mixed-gendered relays. Why we can't award team medals based off the total accomplishments of the men and women competing. Why we can't have mixed-gendered sports throughout youth sports. Or why we can't create new teams and new leagues of elite male and female athletes competing together. Yes, we have to be mindful of competitive advantages in contact in team sports. And no, we do not want mixed-gendered sports to limit the opportunities for women and girls in sports. But every time a young boy gets struck out by a girl, you throw like a girl ceases to mean insult. 
he will learn that femininity is a form of strength. Gloria Steinem once said, we've begun to raise our daughters more like sons, but few have had the courage to raise our sons more like our daughters. That courage is long overdue, but it is well within our control. If we want to live in a world where women and girls and the LGBT community have equal access, opportunity, and experience, then I believe it starts by rethinking the sex segregation in sports. We've just heard clips today, starting with straight white American Jesus explaining gender dysphoria. The majority report dispelled myths about treating children. Democracy Now! introduced the wave of new anti-trans laws. Consider This briefly discussed the dangers of cutting off access to care with these laws. The majority report addressed the issues of transition regret and detransitioning. What Next discussed the dangerous game Republicans are playing because even most conservatives have already come around to supporting trans rights. Post Reports explained a bit about trans-exclusionary radical feminist. What's Next discussed the anti-trans talking points disguised as feminism regarding trans people in sports. And a TEDx talk from Hudson Taylor addressed the issue of sex-segregated athletics head-on. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Consider This speaking with trans journalists about the importance of their voices in covering stories related to trans people. Straight white American Jesus made the connection between the Christian ideal of patriarchy and why the very existence of trans people is a threat to their idea of the world, and a TED Talk by Archie Crowley discussed the evolution of language, particularly as relates to using the word they to refer to a single person. And if you're mad about that, you're going to be furious that we have been misusing you for hundreds of years now. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, I would normally be saying that we're going to hear from you, but we're not. I don't have any uh, voicemails queued up today. If you uh, would like to leave a voicemail and get involved in the conversation, the number to dial is 202-999-3991, or just write me a message to j at bestofleft.com, and I can turn that into a message to be played on the show. But I just want to finish by adding on to a couple of concepts. So you heard me mention that the members' last clip that they heard was addressing the evolution of language and how uh, the word you used to mean something different than it does now, and it would be very strange to use it in the old way, but if you know people from 500 years ago heard how we use it now, then they would be baffled. So there's that idea, put put a pin in that one. There's also the idea that we all just heard about sex-segregated athletics in a gender-spectrum world, and all of these sorts of things are reminding me of a, I think, a call that I got almost 10 years ago now, maybe amongst the first few episodes we did covering trans rights or the dynamics of trans people in our society and so forth. And I, I think I recall getting a voicemail from a listener who was very not hateful or angry, but was struggling. He was struggling to deal with these new concepts. Uh, I, I think he may have been struggling with the concept of the existence of cis people, which is pretty big group of people. It's just everyone who feels that their gender identity matches exactly what society sees. The gender they were defined at birth feels exactly right to them. Congratulations, you're cis. And he, I think, maybe had a problem with that, but I think definitely had a problem with anyone in the middle of the spectrum. 
that there might be intersex people or people on a gender spectrum who don't quite feel that they belong on either far end of the gender binary. And he called in and just expressed that he was having trouble with this and described himself as being very attuned to spreadsheets. Like his job was as an analyst working with spreadsheets, and that was very well suited to his way of thinking. His his mind was very well attuned to dealing with things in boxes. Every bit of data belongs in a box, and every box has a meaning, and the data relates to one another, but they all exist in their separate boxes. And so any of this gray area talk on the gender or sex spectrums, he just was struggling to believe it existed or, or, or struggling to handle its existence, something along those lines. And I, uh, so I'll just sort of reiterate basically what I said back then, but I have a lot more information and knowledge on the subject now than I did 10 years ago, is that reality, it turns out, does not lend itself nicely to hard lines and rigidly defined boxes. Reality just doesn't actually have those. We invented them. Humans, in an effort to make sense of the world around us, created these lines and boxes and started putting stuff into it. And almost anything you look at in the world that you think can be rigidly defined, you're very likely to find that it can't. I mean, there's not even a hard line between our atmosphere and space. You think you're in a different place now than space because we're inside the atmosphere as opposed to outside the atmosphere, as if there's a line that defines in versus out, but there's not. There's not a line. There's a vast range of kind of atmosphere. You go from atmosphere to kind of atmosphere, and that lasts for a really, really, really long time before there's no more atmosphere. But there's no point at which you can cross over from atmosphere to not atmosphere. And the same sort of range is true of sex and certainly true of gender. And it's not just because our brains are super complex and we overthink things until we get confused about the true and simple nature of reality. No, the simple truth about reality is it's super, super complicated and we're struggling to understand it. And it's really hard because things are complicated. I mean, many species in what we ridiculously refer to as the natural world in yet another stupid attempt to draw a hard line, this time between ourselves and everything else in the world, also exist on sexual spectrums, as well as species that transition from one to the other. That's part of the natural world. And there are even spectrums between species, which should blow everyone's mind because we've all been taught that species are in rigidly defined boxes and the definition of a species is that it stays on its own and doesn't mix with any other. Oh, it turns out we drew those boxes wrong and that's not universally true. We think that because we have designated two species as separate that we've managed to draw a hard line between them, but nature doesn't give a shit about our perceptions of reality. So if two species that we define as separate work well in nature as being on a spectrum with each other, then they're just going to go ahead and do that regardless of what we think about it. So if you're into rigidly defined boxes because you think it helps you understand the nature of the world, just know that you are literally hampering your ability to actually understand the nature of reality, not making it easier. So our current rigid binary of sex-segregated athletics and restrooms and anything else you want to put in that category is at odds with the reality of existence and the reality of sex and gender spectrums. So spoiler alert, 
that conflict is not going to get solved by convincing reality to change to fit our predefined boxes. The only way forward is for us to redraw our boxes to match reality, which is what we always should have done from the very beginning, you know, but like Jesus and the patriarchy had other ideas. So if you're still not in favor of that, just prepare to be forever frustrated by reality's obstinate refusal to conform to your preconceived notions. Trans and intersex people have been around for a lot longer than organized sports or gender segregated bathrooms, and they're not going anywhere anytime soon. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design bonus show co-hosting and everything else and thanks of course to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support as that is absolutely how the program survives and now everyone can earn rewards and support the show just by telling everyone you know about it using our referralmatic system at bestoftheleft.com refer for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.